Welcome to Marginally Significant. Today we're going to be talking about teaching. Uh, my name is Andrew Smith. I'm here with Andrew Monroe, Twyla Wingrove, and Chris Holden. Like I said, we're going to be talking about teaching, but more specifically, um, how we ta- uh, um, teach undergrads about the replication crisis in a way that hopefully they don't lose faith in all of psychological science. Um, and maybe they will. Um, yeah, I mean, but that, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? So how do we talk to students? Um, and we can talk about, I mean, I mentioned before, um, grads and undergrads, yeah. but, but we can, um, graduate students and undergrad students, but we can talk about, we can talk about both, but, um, how do we talk to them about the replication crisis and the fact that a lot of the stuff, especially in some of our areas, social psychology, um, doesn't typically, um, you know, on average, we got like what, a 50, 50 shot that uh, any given study is going to replicate. Right. And so how do we talk about that and how do we tell them about the replication crisis yet then go on to lecture about all of these studies and what they should, you know, think and how, oh, but we're empirically based on shaky, crappy, you know, research. I mean, how do we do that? Or how do you guys do that? I don't know how I do it, but how do you guys do that? Yeah, I'm still figuring that out. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I was going to say, I think uh, grad students so far that I've interacted with seem to be more receptive to it. That could just be a product of the classes that I teach. You know, even in my personality side class, I, I get into the basics of what good science is and how we derive hypotheses and what it means to do an experimental method. Um, but I don't think most people go into my class thinking that that's what personality psychology is going to be. So it could just be a factor of that. But I, I, I think one way to frame it and one way I try and talk about it when I give broader talks about this is like, this is an opportunity. And we've had paradigm shifts before, we'll have paradigm shifts in the future, you know, like we moved from, uh, who was it, Galilean physics to Newtonian physics or whatever, you know, so I think you can do a little bit of that, but my experience has been that grad students and maybe faculty and, you know, broader interest folks seem to be more on board and undergrads aren't quite sure what it means. And maybe I'm just doing a bad job too. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I'm doing a very good job. I think I do a great job with the controversial stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't think I do a good job with open science and replication in my in my senior level classes because they've already because the way I've structured the courses is like I assume they've already taken methods, they've already taken a lab course, and yeah. so they've heard it already and so I bring it up fleetingly instead of focusing on it and I don't know if that's useful. I don't think they're at the stage where fleeting reminders are sufficient (laughs) so so the most common thing that comes up for me is the Zimbardo controversy because of the nature of the classes that I teach Mm -hmm. and so I do bring that up and I do I talk about the I lecture about the controversy but I don't assign readings and usually they're su- they they're still like surprised that it even they they're processing <laughs> that they shouldn't should we not trust those environments right. um, and so it's a very introductory level and I don't devote much time to it and so I'm always at the end of every semester I'm like I should work more work that in better yeah and I don't. Yeah, I think building off that idea of like fleeting reminders, it, if it is at that level, and I'm guilty of doing the same thing, you know, I'll say, oh, there's this study, but it, it doesn't quite replicate, or the effects aren't quite as large as um, what we saw before. And I think it, the students have a hard time with that because 
they see me as an authority figure and they see the people doing the research as an authority figure. So there's this appeal to authority. And as much as I try, I can't, I'm not good at breaking down that wall of me being the professor and then being the students. So if I say like, oh, maybe you should think about this more broadly or, you know, this study suggested this, but maybe we should think more critically about it. They're still making that appeal to authority and just relying on that heuristic basically to, to make those decisions. So I don't know a good way to break them of those heuristics. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there, there are sort of two different things to, to maybe break this into. Like one is how do we, or do we talk about the sort of replication crisis writ large and sort of associated issues of open science. And then the other related, uh, question is, how do we talk about specific studies that may or may not replicate? And I feel like it, it might be important to sort of separate yeah. the, those two things out. Because yeah. on, on the former, totally. on, on, on the first question, so um, in my social psych class, I, I just for the first time reformatted my social psych class uh, in a long time. And what I did is I always start out with methods before we get to any of the findings. Yeah. And so now in my methods slides, I spend about a day talking about replication crisis. I talk about like perverse incentives in publishing. I talk about uh, Stoppel and then I talk about open science and I talk about like how science is advancing. And so I actually just did this lecture today and cool. it was crazy fun. Uh, like we went through, like we did 538's uh, p-hacking exercise and so we talk a lot about p-hacking. I never, so historically, I never enjoy these first lectures on methods and social psych because I find it to be like pretty pretty dull, but this is the first time I've enjoyed teaching methods and social psych in, in a while because it has this, this that, that open science, replication, all of that is really woven in. And, and I think that this is an important framework for like giving students at the very beginning of saying that and, and actually sort of telling it in a narrative that there are perverse incentives in our field and for that matter like name a scientific field like this holds for biology mm -hmm. holds for medicine holds for chemistry physics is a bit better but like they have problems too but so saying like there's this problem with whether or not the science replicates as a function of perverse incentives and, and the need to publish this has produced a number of really negative findings in the extreme case from like data fabrication restoppel uh, and or like you know more sort of mundane cases of QRPs these questionable questionable research practices data peaking all these types of things and really like lay out what and how like especially questionable research practices are things that on their face are not patently unreasonable the idea of like as a researcher you would want to like check and like I just want to make sure that like my my study is like not going totally off the rails but then data peaking is sort of taking that sort of understandable worry and then just abusing it uh, p-hacking is the same thing like like taking things that could be in like really small doses reasonable things to do to sort of be careful about the way that you think about your experiments and then just like abusing the crap out of them to like pull out findings that you want. So talking about that and then saying, but like that has been a problem that still is a problem. Psychology is sort of unique in that we are very openly and transparently wrestling with this problem and trying to move forward. And then like really sort of 
ending on here are the things our science is doing in order to get better. And I think that like that arc really speaks to students that yeah. things are things weren't going so well, major problems. We're we're trying to make uh, progress, and and then to say like a lot of what we're going to talk about is like we'll talk about sort of what we think is reliable, where there are data, or where there are questions about whether or not this is. This finding replicates. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't gotten to that second part. Like, um, oh, right. I know at some point I'm going to talk about Barge's priming study, like the coffee study. And Patrick Heck just did uh, a really nice study where they tried to replicate it, and there's no effect at all. And I'm not sure exactly how to talk about that yet, to, because I feel like saying, like, so X showed this effect, and Y showed that this effect doesn't exist. I don't know that they know how to make sense of that. Yeah. No. And, and that's, what, yeah, that's what I, yeah. so, so I, I agree with the whole, like, you know, you tell about the, the crisis, but then like going through the class, yeah. then do you just say like, well, anything before 2012, it's probably garbage. Like you got a 50, 50 shot that it actually is going to replicate. Like, like, I don't, I don't know that we can say that because that's just a hard idea to, to yeah. grasp for them. The heuristic I give them is, the more famous the researcher, the more you should doubt their their claims. I, there you go. I am obviously kidding. Like yeah. that isn't that isn't right. the heuristic I give my students. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, that, that, that's the hard thing is that like we we give them this idea. Like, and so I I do it not not as extensive. I want to build it more into my social class. I do it in the social lab class, which we'll talk about later. But um, the social site class, the lecture class, I do talk a little bit about that. But then, you know, after that, then I jump into, all right, let's talk about this, these studies. And I mean, three quarters of the stuff that I talk about was published before 2012. And, you know, it wasn't pre-registered. It wasn't, you know, so we don't know about p-hacking. You know, with this, there hasn't been replication attempts. Um, so certainly I've dropped so much stuff. So like a lot of the priming stuff I've dropped because it doesn't seem to be replicating. Um, obviously the um, uh, Zimbardo stuff um, with his, um, I actually do address the Stanford prison study just to say like, you might have heard about this. However, it seems like there are potential issues. And so I talk about it because I might have heard about it. Um, but for the most part, I, I just, I continue on just to talk about this older research like it's true and it may or may not be true do we raise that uncertainty to them do we not raise it do we still just continue to talk about it like it's true i mean there i think that barring evidence to the contrary so the the norm in our field is if something is published uh okay i'm making this argument but i don't know if i believe in this argument uh the disclaimer yeah we got that uh so like the norm in our field is if something is published all things being equal we believe the effect to to be true. Maybe not as big as, as it is in the paper, but we right. believe it to be true. Now, if there are studies that show like, this might not be true, I think it is good to include that nuance. But if you're talking about a study where no one has tried to replicate it, mm-hmm. and so for, we don't have any evidence to the contrary, I, I feel like it's fair to, to teach that because it's the best knowledge that we have in the field yeah. is that this is a true finding. And we might change that belief uh, when we get new information. But I don't think that I don't think that it's productive to tell people like <laughs> everything is fucked right, yeah. to, to to pull from, from Sanjay's uh, uh, syllabus. Yeah. But yeah. so I, I don't think that that's 
I don't think you want to give students like that idea, at least undergrad students. Like maybe grad students can understand, again, the nuance a bit better. But I think for undergrad students, I think if the best knowledge that we have in the field is that this is a true finding, teach it as a true finding. I don't know what the alternative is. Yeah. Like I would have an empty syllabus if yeah. I had to cut out everything that hadn't been replicated. Yeah. In my field, no one has re- tried to replicate it. There's one replication paper I'm aware of in my field. Mm-hmm. And so I'm Did a field, I guess. <laughs> I actually can't remember. <laughs> so no. It's, it's, it's either yes or no. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like so like you know my entire syllabus would go out the window yeah. I mean I guess I could teach everything as an open question <laughs> like what do we think about this but I think I you have to go to a philosophy department yeah, yeah I would have yeah. no sense of direction yeah. if I didn't give the published research the benefit of the doubt so one thing I found helpful in that and I might sound like a hypocrite saying this because I just said I didn't do a good job with undergrads <laughs> but one thing I have found helpful in terms of how do you frame it to them? How do you make sure that yeah. they're thinking about it? And how can we make sure we don't have an empty syllabus? Is I say things like, all that this is is just returning to the core principles of science. And most yes. folks were taught the scientific method and can rattle off a version of it, you know, because they were taught it in you know elementary or primary school. So I think if you give them that anchor, you know, which we can talk about maybe whether or not that's a good way to describe it, but you give them that anchor and say, like, look, you already know this stuff, and you already know some basics of critical thinking. Just use that. Just use that to interpret these findings. And I think when I start talking about, okay, you know, these are the core principles of science, and then this is what open science is suggesting, i.e. transparency, sharing of information, it's really easy to see how those things pour in. And then you don't have to go as far as to say... I mean, you might still want to say it, but you could say, like, here's a study, and it was done before 2011. Take it with a grain of salt. Take it critically. And that way you can still talk about some of those things. And I think a lot of those things resonate with people. A lot of those foundational studies that are now not replicating are resonating, and that could be a, a, a foot in the door to get them to think about the broader implications of what it might mean. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I try to teach any topic that I'm teaching as a, an idea right. more than a fact. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I try to bring that critical eye, but then I know that students don't necessarily hear the idea piece. They right, hear the, right. what do I have to memorize? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so there's always that disconnect that sometimes yeah. I can't push through. Yeah, one of the, I mean, um, kind of building off that, like I like teaching the social lab class um, because the way that I have that structured is um, basically I start off by talking about the replication crisis because, again, this is supposed to be like, you know, methods 2.0, basically. And so we talk about the replication crisis and and we talk about um, um, how, you know, it's important to be able to replicate these studies and there might be reasons why they might not replicate even they're they're published and so on and so forth. And then we go throughout the semester and then we run two studies and we actually replicate, well, or attempt to replicate um, other studies. And, but one of the things that's interesting is, is I always start off in the beginning of the semester and I talk about like, okay, here's this study and they found X finding. All right. This was, you know, 20 years later, um, you know, so-and-so people, they tried to replicate it and they had, let's say like three times as many participants. So a good sample size and it didn't replicate. Why might it have not replicated? 
And, and so it's a discussion. And so they get into small groups and they talk about it and come up with ideas. And they always do a good job of coming up with ideas of like, oh, well, you know, times have changed and maybe they use slightly different measures and they do this. But what's funny is they never come up with the idea of maybe the original study is garbage. Maybe the original study did yeah. not find, or they found that it was a fluke. Maybe it was just like they ran 20 studies and published the one. You know, they, they never come up with that of maybe that original study was wrong. Yeah. And I kind of want to get them to that point. I mean, I do. I talk about that. I bring that up. And I want to say, like, remember, it could be that this is a problem, but I don't want to harp on that too much yeah. that then later on, every study that I talk about, they're like, well, that could be wrong. That could be wrong. That could be wrong. And it's like, well, that's true, but, you know. But I think this is why, like, the broader frame... So, so two responses. Uh, I think this is why the broader frame at the very beginning is so important to, to talk about how studies that we thought were true, like, turned out not to be true, to, like, add that degree of skepticism. So one thing we want from our students in our classes is to teach them how to be discerning and careful consumers of information. So I think like that, like, oh, it might not be true, it might not be true, may not be all that bad because then you can push on that in the same way and say, okay, it might not be true, tell me why. Like, why do you think that that's not true? And then if you can't come up with like a good justification for that, uh, and I mean, maybe they can, but if you can't, then then I think that that really forces them to think critically about like what would undermine a study's credibility. Like, are there methodological assumptions? Mm-hmm. Are there theoretical assumptions? Are there methodological problems or statistical issues that that undercut a, a study? So I think that starting and and this is why I guess I'm I'm so I'm in the thick of it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is why like I'm I'm so excited excited to start with this frame mm-hmm. and and then hopefully like carry that through so that as we're going through, they they sort of have this idea of challenging the accepted wisdom is is okay, yeah. um, but then like you have to generate a challenge yeah. to it. And I and I should say like none of the none of like the open science things that I added to my slides are, are my own. I should <laughs> thank like academic Twitter uh, <laughs> for like, I, I posted a tweet and I got wonderful responses back and and like the the fact that I was able to add all this open science stuff to my to my lectures really like that's entirely the uh the generosity of, of people on academic twitter so yeah. thank you academic twitter that's what makes it open <laughs> yeah. science though too right yeah like we're, right. Sh- we're sharing these yeah. materials and data so it seems like the gist is yes teach undergrads about it yeah i think if you frame <laughs> it properly yeah, yeah. I, I mean i will say also in terms of undergrads and grad students almost like without exception whenever i talk about this stuff um, they all say like, well, yeah, that's obvious, right? Like, yeah. like when I talk about like, you know, best practices and, and open science and all this sort of stuff, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because like, I almost have trouble explaining some of the questionable research practices. Yeah. Right. Because, like, this isn't what we learned in research. Methods. Yeah. Cause they're like, well, yeah. obviously yeah. nobody we would do that. Right. Yeah. 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 You don't do that. Right. You have a hypothesis, you test your own hypothesis, not, Hey, we collect data and run 85 analyses and, and present the one that, that we worked. Think, yeah. The worked. Yeah. And, and so it's just interesting that sometimes it's almost hard to explain to them like why this is a problem because they're, they're so on board with like, well, obviously you shouldn't do that. So yeah. So I mean, to give them credit, I haven't had trouble convincing them that this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Do you all have a threshold for when do you cut something out of your lecture entirely? So when do you say this particular finding is so flawed, yeah. it's 
not worth even discussing the nuance about it yeah. that it, it's it's just like time for this idea to go away i have a very low threshold so like the second like so, if something hasn't been replicated like not a, if if there was a replication attempt and it didn't replicate so we have two studies one found the effect one didn't I'm chucking it because I'm just like I don't know, and typically, uh, I mean, ninety five percent of the time, the the replication attempt is larger sample and and better run study. No. So so it's not a hard comparison to make. But I typically have a fairly low threshold. So like like I was saying, like a lot of the priming stuff, yeah. I have just dropped from social because I'm just like I'm not. I'm not convinced that these very subtle manipulations can influence behavior. Certainly, I think priming exists, and yes, it can change what happens in your brain, but... but I, I drive by Taco Bell, you know, three times a day, <laughs> and eventually yeah. I go to Taco Bell, you know? Uh, but so, so a lot of those, I, I have a pretty low threshold that I'll, I'll drop those. And there's just so much to talk about in social that and things that I know replicate, things that I know happen. I mean, there's a lot that, that I'm pretty willing to just like drop relatively quickly i don't know if i have a hard threshold but to push back on that a little bit i think if it is a larger study better power better run then yeah if it doesn't replicate then that's giving us some insight Mm -hmm. but we also have to be careful not to make the assumption that a failed replication doesn't mean that an effect is not there Mm -hmm. right so uh, when i've come across studies that i'm like should i include this should i not if there's some nuance there, I think you can you can still bring it in and say like, look, this is what was originally proposed. This is what's happening now. We don't know. Does it follow some intuition? Maybe. Um, the only example I can think of this in my personality classes, I talk about some of the uh, menstrual cycle shift stuff, which that's it's a very <laughs> messy and fraught line of studying. Um, but I think you can still talk about some of that nuance. And I think if if you always said, well, it doesn't replicate, I'm not going to talk about it, you might miss out on some teaching opportunities. I want to make some joke about menstrual cycle stuff being messy. <laughs> I, know, I, I, just, I want to make that joke. I feel so bad because I walked right into it. That was horrible. You know, was I'm kind of surprised Moreau didn't say anything. I am, the spirit, I am the spirit of charity and goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. That's how we would describe you. <laughs> Uh, but but Holden, I, I agree. So I really like to talk about ego depletion yeah. for that reason. Yeah. That like it's this finding that it's I think like to talk about it. However, <laughs> no, no, because it's a finding that like initially like, really grabs them and feels intuitive to them. Yeah. Yeah, and cool. then it's a it's a good doorway into saying okay, so there are these initial studies, but then here are some of the problems with them. And then opening that up to say here are a bunch of the replication attempts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because there's just been so much replication yeah. work yeah. surrounding ego depletion, I think it, it's an opportunity to talk a little bit about why, like, what replication science can do that is really positive, but also to like help clarify, like, well, what? Because like, surely there is a phenomenon, like, if you want to call it ego depletion or getting tired or like whatever, like, there's a phenomenon that like at the end of my day, um, I'm more likely to like eat some Taco Bell than at the beginning of my day because I get tired and like. I get to a point of like, fuck it, I'm hungry. We can't apparently observe that in the lab, but but I think that there, like my threshold for like tossing out ego depletion, I guess is relatively high because I, I want to use that as an opportunity to talk about replication and open science and sort of the the promise of, of that larger thing. Other things like um, 
like Amy Cuddy's power stuff, mm-hmm. I've dropped entirely from from my lectures, and I, I remember like I was really sad when I did that <laughs> uh, because I think, and you know, true or not, I think some of my students really found that work to be personally empowering for them. Yeah, and I think so. I think it was like a it was something that was positive for them, and I felt bad that I was kind of taking that away. But at the same time, like this isn't true, and I mean, as far as we know, like this isn't true, and so I yeah. I, I don't teach that. Anymore. It's kind of like if a, if a drug works only because of a placebo effect. Right. Do you yeah. tell people, no, that's just a placebo effect, yeah. or do you let the drug let, let them just continue working? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, like with the ego depletion stuff, I don't, I don't talk about that. I'm, you know, I, I need to read up more on like stereotype threat, but I know there have been issues with replication with stereotype threat. But I agree, like that currently it's still in there. Yeah. But that's a tough one because I, I think that there are a lot of people who deal with that, with um, stereotype threat issues. And so I kind of want to address it. But at the same time, I don't know how to kind of reconcile, like, well, if the data doesn't support that there's an effect. But again, with that one, I'm, I'm not convinced yeah. yet. I don't know one way or the other yet. I need to look more into that. And I will say, like, that, that actually is not being up on it is, mm-hmm. is something that is a, is a challenge. Like, I know there's. I am aware that there's a discussion around the IAT right now, mm, yeah. but I am not. So like, I still teach, right? I mean, this semester I will teach the IAT unless I like get on my game and update my slides <laughs> and like learn some things before then and now. You already made uh, one change. Well, let's not, let's <laughs> let's not one change, is one change per, per semester, semester yeah. pre-tenure. Yeah. But like, that's something that I probably will teach because I have not gotten up to date on all the nuances around that data. Now I would say like, I should. Um, I think that I should do all of that, but at some point, I also want to do like some research, yeah. and uh, and so so I mean, human limitations exist. Yeah. yeah, it is challenging to keep up with the replication. All of the Repli- things yeah. that don't replicate. Yeah, that don't replicate or do. You know, I mean, that's the thing is that I mean, some of the, some yeah. of the stuff is replicated. I mean, depending on the the, um, the studies, I mean, some of the large scale stuff, though, you know. They'll replicate some of it, some of it doesn't. I mean, one of the, the ones in the nature human behavior, the recent um, bigger replication, it was like 60% did replicate. Now, that's obviously way lower than we would hope. We yeah. would want it to be much higher. But still, I mean, a lot in 33. That is better than 33 with that original um, thing. So there's, you know, it's hard to keep up on what does replicate and what doesn't. Yeah. All right. I think that by the looks on everybody's faces, it looks like we're about finished. So raising the glasses in the air. So thank you very much for listening and we'll uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is MarginallySig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.